Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the 10th part of the reading and we're on chapter 11. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon-only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 11. Odds Against Our second becoming did not last as long as the other, for the following morning, the 15th of July, about 9am, a fresh breeze from the southeast sprang up and once again we progressed westward. The bunch of bananas must have been a laying site for flies, because thousands of these unpleasant insects suddenly hatched out and tried their airworthiness in the cabin. No matter how many we slaughtered, thousands of newcomers filled the gaps. It was a fortnight before we were clear of them. That night, a strange phenomenon was witnessed in the sky. The man on watch was amazed to see boat and sea become lighter. Looking up, he expected to see the moon appearing from behind a black cloud, but instead he saw an object which seemed to be the same size as the moon, only a dark reddish-yellow, and as he watched he saw, to his astonishment, large sections fall away and drop like molten metal until the whole mass had disappeared. It was very weird. It may have been an extra-large meteorite heading straight for us so that it appeared stationary and then broke up when quite close. It made us talk of flying saucers. Another was seen a few days later. All the next day, dark rain squalls wandered about, though we missed them all. Our barometer began to sag down and we concluded that we must be passing out of the North Atlantic High, the invisible mountain of air with its peak usually within a few hundred miles of the Azores. The wind was now south by west and fresh. We could lay our course and seemed to be making good progress, but after our day's run had been worked out, we found that only 50 miles had been covered. Calculations were gone through many times, but everything was correct. We could not understand it, but thought perhaps an unusually strong current from the branch of the Gulf Stream which flows in these latitudes had been against us, yet we remained unconvinced that it could be just that alone. Whatever the cause, the result was bitterly disappointing to us. The fresh wind continued during the 17th, and, after adding up, we found that even if we averaged only 50 miles a day, our arrival in New York would be during the first week of August. That would be slow, but not fatal to our plans. There was no need to worry unduly, for although the barometer continued to fall, it was still fairly high by English standards. At 3.30am on the 18th, a sudden squall hit us and the mainsail came down in a hurry. By 4am, we had a moderate gale on our hands. The wind backed to the west, smack in our teeth, so we did the best thing in the circumstances and put out the sea anchor. At 9am, the wind veered to a little south of west, so we hauled in the sea anchor and set the jib in our pocket handkerchief of a trysail. Our progress now towards the northwest was slow and the motion wicked, for with all the quick changes in the wind the waves were a succession of steep pyramids. 
We lurched and tossed about, with an occasional crash coming from underneath the boat as she literally fell down onto her rather flat bottom from a particularly steep sea. When this happened, it jarred every bone in our bodies. Sleep was impossible for the man off watch, and this went on for the next 30 hours. Then at 6pm on the 19th, the wind went light and westerly, dead against us again, and so we altered course to south to keep out of the main flow of the Gulf Stream. Also, we did not want to go further north, or we should have no reserve southing against the prevailing wind, which was shown on our wind charts to be southwest. We were then in latitude 49 degrees north, and the latitude of New York is 41 degrees north. All this time, the sky was grey and the sea a dreary waste. The air was hot, moist, and enervating. The morning of the 20th of July brought the same colourless scene, but the wind disappeared altogether. This was really becoming heartbreaking, and it seemed to us, in our low state of morale, that the finish would eventually come from one of the fiendish hurricanes. We already had heard on our radio of an early one raging up from Barbados, doing damage to shipping and property. At 6pm on the same day, we picked up a light southerly wind. We seemed to have had many wind changes at about that time in the evening, and we set all plain sail and gratefully headed west. By midnight, it had freshened so much that we had to reef down, and what was worse, it veered to southwest, and so we had to go north by west. Conditions became the same as on the 19th. Grey skies, dismal sea, and lurch, 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 bang, lurch, lurch, bang. The barometer, which had been dropping for several hours, accelerated its fall, and the wind notes in the rigging mounted higher. The waves grew in size and began to break heavily. The spray was coming over the Nova in such quantities that an observer might have thought that the boat was a submarine, for all he would see would be mast, like a periscope. By midday on the 21st, it got so bad that we had to put out the sea anchor and take down the jib, leaving only the mizzen set. The wind jumped from southwest to northwest, and while confusion reigned around our little boat, we wedged ourselves as best as we could down below, our nerves as taut as a violin e-string. Then, turning on the radio, we heard the rich country voice of Ralph Whiteman talking about crops and fields and flowers. The contrast was so ludicrous that it broke the strain, and we laughed gratefully. In the evening, the wind lightened a little and we hauled in the sea anchor. It was a back-breaking job hauling in thirty fathoms of two-and-a-half-inch rope against the sea anchor's pull, and one impossible in any larger boat under the same conditions. But a larger boat would, of course, have a trip line, which would reverse the cone-shaped bag so that it could be hauled in point first, off we went again, pounding to the southwest under reefed main. The watches that night were wet and miserable, and as sleep was still impossible below, it was two haggard, grey whiskery faces that greeted the cold light of day, a day that brought another shock to us. The wind being strong, our craft naturally sailed along at a steep angle, exposing a large portion of her underside. One of us, casually looking over the side, suddenly noticed that it was covered with small goose barnacles. 
These seemed specially designed by nature to slow down a sailboat's progress. They are small shellfish on the end of a rubbery-looking stem, which attach themselves firmly to all the boat's underwater sections. They exist in large numbers in the ocean, and when fully matured, they stand out about two inches from the side of the boat. We had a full complement of the adults before we reached our first port. Now we knew what was causing our slow progress, especially on those rare days when we had had fair winds and could expect high speeds. We said some very hard words about the firm which had exported the anti-fouling compound to Horta and recalled the fact that the price had been so high that we sagged at the knees when presented with the bill. We had one of our councils of war. The Nova was now about midway between the Azores and New York, some thousand miles distant from either. After all the pros and cons had been brought to light and carefully weighed, we decided that we would be wiser to change our plans and instead of going direct to New York, we would aim for Nova Scotia, about 700 miles to the northwest. This would bring the prevailing winds on our beam and consequently give us a faster passage for the rest of the way, or so we hoped. Once there, we could clean off the underside, recoat with anti-fouling and continue down the Gulf of Maine through the Cape Cod Canal and Buzzards Bay. It went against the grain to change our plans again, but we hoped it might not make much difference in our arrival time in New York. We studied once again our wind and current chart. There was no doubt that we would get some help from the Labrador current, which flows in the opposite direction to the Gulf Stream. In the later afternoon, the grey skies broke up a little, and the navigator managed to get a snap sight of the sun. In the last 48 hours, we had made only 56 miles to the southwest. We have often been asked how it was possible in the violent motion to get a good observation in a small boat. At the beginning of the voyage, the navigator made quite a fuss over the operation. He would climb on top of the cabin to increase the height of eye as much as possible. Then he would wind arms and legs round the wire shrouds, contort himself till he felt he had the sun kissing the horizon nicely, then bellow, Time! Almost invariably, the navigator would be on watch when an observation was necessary, and out would be fetched the weary man off watch from his bunk to take the helm and balance the deck watch on his knees. Later on, it was much different. The navigator put the boat on a course where she would sail by herself, if not already doing so, and then he quietly got the watch and sextant from below, sat on deck with his feet down the hatch, and as soon as he got a good sight, glanced down at the watch on his lap. Once used to the motion, the whole operation was comparatively simple. Anyway, we put the Azores and Nova Scotia where they ought to be, according to our calculations. We had a big thrill on the 23rd of July. The boat was sailing herself while we were digging into a tin of steak and kidney pudding, when a strange instinct made us feel that we were not alone. It was so strong that one of us poked his head up out of the hatch, and there, a hundred yards away, was a steamer coming directly towards us. We both scrambled hastily on deck, and as the enormous piece of ironwork rumbled past, a guttural voice shouted, Where are you from? We answered, London! And they shouted again, Where are you from? And again we shouted in unison, London! 
and that was all the conversation we had, for the man hailing us walked away from the ship's side, shaking his head. The others just stared. She was the Holstein of Hamburg. And soon she was a speck in the distance, and then we were once more utterly alone. Still, we thought it was kind of them to change course and come and have a look at us. We still headed southwest, thinking that when the wind blew as it should from the southwest, we could head west by north without feeling that we might land in Labrador. No matter from where the wind blew or how hard, daily chores had to be done. The making of fresh water from the sea was usually done in the afternoon. We would get out eight of the rubber bags which had a filter and a stoppered rubber tube at the bottom. Into each bag we would put half a pint of seawater and then add a block of four cubes. According to instructions, the bags, after being sealed at the top, should then have been occasionally shaken. We tied them in the rigging, where they got all the shaking they needed. Half an hour later, we pressed the finished product from each bag into a bottle. This produced half a gallon and lasted us 24 hours. We could have used more, but we wanted to reserve some in case of accidents. Sights were taken, weather permitting, in the morning, midday and evening, and we took it in turns to do our rudimentary cooking. During the night of the 22nd and the early hours of the 23rd, the stronger wind freshened into a gale and out went the sea anchor. The sky was filled with low grey clouds, scudding a few feet above us at an amazing speed. We thought at once that this was the beginning of a hurricane. Too tired to care now, we lay on our bunks, gripping the sides to prevent being thrown about, and it felt like being inside a butter churn. At odd times, we would stagger on deck and check the sea anchor warp and look round the horizon. While doing one of these periodic checks in the evening, we saw an enormous black cloud mounting the sky to windward. Half an hour later, the wind suddenly eased and down came torrents of rain and the heavy drops beat a devil's tattoo on the thin, resounding plywood of the cabin top. We just couldn't find the energy to make sail in that kind of weather, so we turned in and got a good night's sleep. The next morning was the 25th, and we were three weeks out from the Azores. We had hoped to be past the 60th meridian, but had only reached the 53rd. The sun woke us by pouring its cheerful rays through the portholes onto our eyes. What a different scene greeted us when we went on deck. Gone were the grey skies and the large, dark, angry seas. In their place was a brilliant blue sky with a few small, fleecy white clouds. The sea had become smoother and looked deceptively gentle. Most wonderful of all was the wind, now blowing gently from the northeast. With lightened hearts and a spurt of energy, we had every stitch on the Nova in a few minutes. The mainsail eased off and the spinnaker set. Sailing became a joy once more. These conditions lasted all day on the 25th and part of the 26th, except that the wind veered to the east and then went south by east, but we maintained an excellent speed all the time. The change in the weather brought back our usual interesting discussions. Having passed an ancient Portuguese man-of-war, we decided, after much talk, on the life cycle of the silent ocean wayfarers. 
Off Portugal, we had seen countless thousands of them, no bigger than a sixpence, often much smaller. The wind and the Portuguese current would eventually take most of them down to the northeast trades, which, in turn, would blow them across the ocean to the West Indies. By that time, they would be fully mature and would reproduce the egg cells which, in the form of plankton, would be carried by the Gulf Stream up the coast of America, across the North Atlantic to Western Europe and evolve into the baby ones we saw there. Then the tour would begin again. In the afternoon of the 26th, the sky wrote all its warnings to mariners of coming trouble. Four plain to sea were mares' tails, cats' tails, sun dogs and a shoal of mackerel. Coming up against the wind was an ominous-looking nimbus surrounded by towering cumulus. We found by experience that these warnings were usually correct, and our brief spell of decent weather would soon be over. At 6pm, a sudden heavy gust made the helmsman lower the mainsail in the juice of a hurry. It began to pour with rain as we tied a reef in the mainsail, and the wet, flogging canvas tore our fingernails and frayed our tempers. The watch from 6 to 10 looked like being a wet one, and so it was, but at 9.45pm another vicious squall hit us, and even with the reefed main we heeled over until the lee portholes were covered. The squall didn't pass, and the wind jumped to the southwest and increased in force, so down came the reefed main and we continued for a while under jib and mizzen. The wind continued to grow in strength, and so, yet again, out went the sea anchor. The wind was estimated at force nine, and made a demoniac shriek in the rigging. Bravely, the Nova faced another ordeal against the elements, and she gave us every confidence that she would win. On this occasion, we used the cover which we had brought with us to spread over the cockpit in bad weather. As luck would have it, at that moment, a freak wave hit us full on the beam and for a few seconds the Nova was completely submerged. The cover adjuster brought his head back into the cabin, spitting out seawater, and looked like a drowned rat. He said that only the mast had been visible above the broken water. That night he had to sleep naked between his blankets as there was not a dry stitch of clothing on board. The southwest wind moderated in the early hours of the 27th, and we hauled in the sea anchor and set a reefed main. The sky still had plenty of warnings written over it, but we hoped that they were old ones from weather past. We jogged along to the northwest, making a lot of leeway in the rough sea, but it was progress of a sort, and we were glad to be moving again. Our joy was very short-lived this time, for at midday the wind, without warning, doubled its strength, and we very hurriedly had to bring down all sail. Out went the sea anchor, and we morosely waited for better weather. The odds against us loomed extra large that day. We saw large masses of sargasso weed formed into lanes by the wind. This weed starts life on rocks on the coast of Florida and the West Indies. In bad weather and in hurricanes, the plants get dislodged and are carried by the Gulf Stream northwards and out into the Atlantic. Eventually, much of it drifts and accumulates to form the dense masses found in the Sargasso Sea. We were thus obviously now in the main current of the Gulf Stream. It was heartening to see that the drift downwind was slightly more than ours. Blessed be the sea anchor. In the evening, 
While the gale raged outside, we switched on the radio and heard Dvorak's New World Symphony from beginning to end. Both being lovers of good music, this was a real pleasure, and heard out in the ocean, it seemed to lift us in spirit into a transcendental world. It was a silent sea when we awoke early on the 28th of July. There was still a heavy swell running, but it had an oily, sleek look. This must have been a sudden transition, for at 2am the wind had been still playing tunes in the rigging. Now there wasn't a breath. We were reminded of a famous British advertisement showing people with too much or too little. At that time, we were having the same trouble with the wind. Large yellowtails visited us, again showing no fear of us or the boat. The ardent fisherman once more tried by every means to catch one. The little spear was flashing up and down into the water like the piston of an engine. At 11am we felt a gentle zephyr on the backs of our necks. Wind. Up went the mainsail and down came a shower of parrel balls, the hard wooden balls which are strung on a line from the jaws of the gaff to encircle the mast, thus holding the gaff to the mast, which hit the deck and rolled into the water. We had two spares, which we now fitted with new cod line and hoisted sail again. As the slight wind was astern of us, we hoisted the spinnaker as well. The sun shone, but there were heavy-looking clouds around. One of them brought a sharp rain squall with it, and we had to lower the spinnaker, which had only been set an hour previously. The wind backed to the southeast, and we went roaring west-northwest with a large white bone in our teeth. The navigator got busy, and we found that we had a little less than 400 miles to go before we should sight the shores of Nova Scotia. We didn't have a chart of the coast, only the North Atlantic track chart and our weather chart. On each, the whole of Nova Scotia was no longer than an inch. To make matters worse, the charts didn't quite agree. But on the track chart, there was a tiny dent near the southwestern tip, and it was towards this dent that we plotted our course. Black squalls and torrential rain heralded the break of day on the 29th. By some freakish coincidence, these downpours always occurred on Stanley's watch. This favouritism by the weather gods was not appreciated by him, but Charles was satisfied with their dispensation. The wind veered to the southwest, and with it hard on the port bow, we managed to make the Nova sail herself. This was always a great asset, for it enabled us to do maintenance work without losing our off-watch sleep. Sometimes if the wind held steady and blew forward of the beam, she would sail without being touched for days on end, and the watches were less tiring. All day we played hide-and-seek among the squalls, and luckily dodged most of them. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.